0: One of my favorite phrases about the interplay between technology and people goes like this. It's not the wand, it's the wizard. Now, a few different people are credited with saying this, including, checking my notes, Food Network star and celebrity pastry chef Duff Goldman. I first heard it from a marketing friend and fellow awesome first name haver, Jay Bear. It's not the wand, it's the wizard. Agreed. It's about the people. It's not about the marketing tools. It's the skills and the vision and the creativity of the people using those tools. So that's why I wanted to run this episode in full, which honestly made me a little bit nervous. I'll explain why in a bit. But today, we go deep inside the landscape of podcasting technology, not the specific tools, but the way people are approaching those tools. And the whole time, we're going to hold tight to our pointy hats and our capes and to the belief. That it's the people who matter most. This is Three Clips. Welcome back to Three Clips, the show where we make sense of great podcasts a few little pieces at a time. I'm Jay Akunzo, the founder of Marketing Showrunners, where we wanna help you make your audience's favorite show so you can be their favorite brand. We serve marketers who work in house and want to find and share their voice, make a difference and shift the culture for the better. We think a show is the best way to do that. On this show, Three Clips, we deconstruct great podcasts to try and understand what makes them work so we can all go make better shows ourselves. But this is one of our more conversational episodes where every so often we like to talk to somebody who may or may not be running a show themselves, but more importantly, their life's work is affecting how all of us make our shows. Today, we're talking to Justin Jackson, He's a longtime online entrepreneur, or as he refers to it, an internet stuntman. And currently, he's working on Transistor, a relatively new podcast hosting and distribution platform that he launched with his co-founder and his co-host, John. The two of them also host the show, Build Your SaaS, which is a podcast about building SaaS companies, including Transistor. It's a raw look at their own experiences each week as entrepreneurs. Now, full disclosure, this episode will not be for everyone. I recognize that. If you're interested in the tech behind podcasting, but more importantly, tech philosophy, I think you'll enjoy this because we get into it and we really nerd out. And I was kind of nervous just to release the whole thing unedited because I was like, do others care about this stuff the way we do? But I didn't want to touch it too much because I think it's important that you hear Justin and I try and grapple with some of these concepts affecting tech and the ethics of that tech and the entire podcasting industry. So after the break, the unedited, angsty, hopeful, uncertain, and confident march towards a better podcasting landscape. Stay with me. Today's episode is made possible thanks to the financial support and sponsorship from Casted. Casted is building a platform specifically for marketers who make podcasts, specifically in B2B. They believe that podcasts should be central to our strategies, but they're often side projects. So they're building a platform that lets you host, distribute, and merchandise your show and bridge the gap between sales and marketing. Really, that's their goal is to make a show central to how marketing and sales function. It's not about brand awareness. It's about brand affinity and actually using the content bottled up in your show. So You can explore their growing suite of features for B2B marketers who make podcasts at casted.us. And tell them we sent you. It, it really does help fund this show. Thanks. Now, let's hear my conversation with Justin Jackson. Well, you and I have both been podcasting for a while. I think my first show was 2014. I think
1: I've heard you say something like 2012 for your first mm-hmm. show. Is that right? Yeah. My my first podcast. Yeah, I would recorded when I was a teenager. I'd recorded myself and even a, sorry, a child with like tape recorder. I I made lots of radio shows that nobody heard on there, but my first podcast was in 2012. Got it. So
0: in my journeys around the podcasting industry, looking at technologists, which is one of the reasons I want to start talking to you more is, you know, people who are forward thinking and building from a blank slate, they get that benefit of building for now and not taking something that was built yesterday and updating it, which I think is a little bit, there's different challenges in both. But, you know, I, I've traversed so many platforms Where it's like, it almost feels like I'm filling out a healthcare form. It's like, why are there these many fields? They don't make any sense anymore. Why is the design of this software like stuck in 2004 or five? It just it it feels terrible. So, you launched together with John, a product that some might say exists. It's podcast hosting, right? So it is a competitive space. What did you see as? As like missing from all the other tools. I mentioned the design, but I'm sure there's other things that you spotted as, hey, you know what, we could actually build it differently or better or to solve a separate problem.
1: Well, let's start from the marketing perspective, because that's actually where I start. I don't start with the product. I started with the market. And there were some interesting things happening in podcasting that made me feel like it could be a good market opportunity. And let me try to share this metaphor I've been working on. I don't think it's perfect, but if you imagine a a grocery store and, you know, there's cashier one might have a big lineup. And, you know, there's a big lineup. And if you're a cashier working at a grocery store, you might say, oh, if I open up cashier two, people will go into my lineup. And so they open up cashier two and then half the folks from line one go into line two. And in some ways... I think market opportunities are like that. You see a big lineup of people in a line. And then you come along and you go, oh, wait, there's a big lineup of people here. And if I start a a new line, I'll probably get a big chunk of those people. And podcasting felt like that to me. There there was a tipping point where, you know, i had been podcasting since 2012. And I was kind of noticing, I was always into Like the community, you know, I was in like Google Plus groups for podcasting and in the forums and, you know, in the subreddit. And, you know, I was on other podcasts that talked about podcasting, but something happened. There was a tipping point where all of a sudden those lineups, there's a grocery store lineup that seemed to be getting longer. And, you know, there was other people, other competitors opening up their own cashier's line and getting some of that lineup. The lineup was so long, I felt like, you know what? It feels like there's enough demand here that if I opened up another cashier lane, I'd have a bunch of people in my lane as well. But you can't just open the lane and say, now we're here too. There there must be some
0: kind of differentiator you're going for, no?
1: Certainly. But I think it all starts with the initial demand. How many people are lining up to get this product? And it's it's the same like none of us have to. You can evaluate in a sense, in a real world sense, how excited people are about the new iPhone by how many people are lining up on opening day. And you know, if if that lineup is getting shorter and shorter, you know, there could be other dynamics, but most likely people are getting less excited, less interested, less. There's less pent up demand for that product, and I think as marketers, we have an intuitive sense about this that's not always articulated, which is, this is how demand is really created. Here, let me give you another example. So I've been doing marketing for a long time. It's, it's been uh, most of my professional careers in marketing. I was doing some freelancing, and my friend was starting a, a bakery pastry kind of place. And you know, I'd done lots of websites for lots of other small businesses. And It kind of always felt the same. You know, we launch it and it gets a trickle of traffic. And then we kind of gradually build things up. And you you get a sense of, okay, this is how it feels to launch a website for a small business. Well, we launched this website for Duchess Shop in Edmonton. And it was like you could feel the pent-up demand. Because as soon as we launched the website... Suddenly, there's tons of inbound links. Suddenly, they're being talked about in you know the newspaper. They're being talked about on this blog. Like Tons of bloggers were linking to them. There are lots of folks taking photos of these incredible pastries they were making and posting them on Instagram. It felt like we're just trying to hold on to this wave of interest. And the, the contrast of those two things of, oh, wow, when that person opened that business, it really didn't have the same feel of kind of like uncapping all this pent up demand. But when we launched this one, it really felt like we were uncapping this, all this demand. And as someone who's been, you know, working in startups since 2008, and has been, you know, in business for a long time, Transistor felt different than other things I'd done. Now, I think there are other dynamics at play. It's not just how much market demand is there? But most of the movement that marketers experience is already in the market. It's like in a good situation, a marketer is just managing the demand. Right. There's a sense of like codifying it, maybe
0: providing commonality or community among it so people recognize that maybe they're part of something larger too. You know, with the marketing showrunners, we started in June of 2019 and it was just me for a time. Now it's it's me and a small team. And, you know, we're noticing now it's, it's almost there's a little bit of confirmation bias where you look for something enough, you're going to find enough examples. But the more we publish content, the more we talk to different people, we're finding practitioners and agencies and tech vendors. And we're just finding this community that just everybody's doing it. It's already happening. And I think this is where I get a real issue with the word visionary. Because I think we like look at these tech gurus and big tech companies, oh, they're visionary founders. I actually believe that true visionaries, if there is such a thing, the vision, I think, does matter. What are they actually seeing with that vision? It's not the future. It's that they're seeing the present more clearly than most people.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. It, what you said there, that they're noticing what's already happening. L- let's take another example. Steve Jobs... Is kind of walking around the world and observing the world, and I'm sorry if you're tired of Steve Jobs uh, comparisons. I, in some ways, it's not—he's a terrible example because he's the exception to some things. But he's walking around the world and he's just looking at the different. What are people lining up for? Where are people already in motion? And as he's kind of browsing the the main street of world commerce, he goes, "Whoa! Look at this lineup over here." to BlackBerry. and Oh, look at this lineup over here for Nokia smartphones. That's interesting. And so there was already something happening before he launched the iPhone. Now, this is where product does matter, right? So he sees, wow, there's something already happening here. There are people already in motion. Let's do some more observing. He observes a little bit more. And he notices how people use their BlackBerry. He notices what people don't like about it. Uh, There's this quote in Time magazine that I bring up all the time, where he says, you know, I keep watching people with their phones, and most people don't like their phone. And so he was observing the way things already were. And then, based on that momentum that already existed, he said, if we bring this product to market, I think this will resonate at this you know, this level. This is, this is worth doing because there's already people in motion, but the product's wrong, right? So the market was right. There's market demand for this, but the product's not right. And so that's where we can provide something new, something interesting, something that's going to uh, maybe augment this existing energy that's already in the market
0: just a quick break to tell you about one of our partners that helps fund this show Contently. If you know anything about my work, you know that I rant all the time against all the hollow content out there. The team at Contently agrees. They get this. We geek out about it all the time. And they believe that enterprise brands in particular need a place to create better content and get better results. That doesn't mean just throwing money at the problem. It means being smarter about your content strategy. So Contently has done things like build a tech platform that makes your workflow easier and better. They provide strategy guidance and advice to their clients, ranging from Google to Dell to Marriott. And they use a proprietary technology to help you predict which content formats will work best on which channels for your specific audience. Contently also helps their clients tap into a network of creatives, people who have Pulitzers and Emmys, and have written for publications like Wired and New York Mag, and much more. So to support our show, check out Contently's Content Strategy course, which is both smart and entertaining. I mean, one of the writers dressed up as Batman so their content strategy course videos editorial content a hilarious bit of writing and some very smart ideas that course is available at a landing page that they're using to determine should they continue to pay for this podcast (laughs) so please support the show visit contently.com slash three clips that's contently.com slash the number three clips contently.com slash three clips and thanks for supporting our show Now let's get back to my chat with Justin Jackson. Walk walk people through, uh, they'll have a sense for what Transistor does in brief, but walk people through, I think if we zoom out a little bit as an entrepreneur, what's like the state of podcast technology in your mind? Like where are we at? I think when marketers approach a new channel or tactic, there is this idea hovering over the approach that there's really sophisticated technology now. You can measure everything down to the tiny little minutiae and whether or not they know how to use it, that's a different story. But there's a luxury of technology in a lot of spaces. And I feel like maybe with audio, there's a bit of a dearth of that. But I'd be curious for your assessment of like, where is podcasting tech at today and relative to other tools as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, okay, there's probably two philosophical schools of thought here. Uh, On one hand... Uh, A podcast, just like you need web hosting for a website, you need podcast hosting for your podcast. You need a place to store the files that's going to deliver them quickly to millions of listeners around the world. They're going to need a CDN, you're going to need enough bandwidth, all of these kind of issues. You need to generate an RSS feed that has basically each episode you publish gets published to the RSS feed in the same way that... Blogs used to RSS. Right. But what people
0: might not understand, though, just to clarify for listeners is, you know, if you think about Feedly or Google Reader, which used to exist, that was one option that you had for reading blog posts in one aggregator, but you could read them native to wherever they lived. Podcasting, there, there really is only... You could stream in one location, even that's an RSS feed embedded, but the RSS feed allows Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. to essentially suck in the content and deliver it to you in that app. So just, just to clarify that.
1: Exactly. yeah, you don't a lot of folks think that you upload your audio directly to Apple or Spotify, but no, you first you upload your files to a host like Transistor, you create your show notes and you know episode title and description, and that gets published into the RSS feed, which then is consumed by all of these podcast players, you know Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Overcast, et etc. And because these are files living on our server, we can also detect certain things like, oh, what client ID comes through on the file request? So we can say, oh, this person here was listening to this show on Overcast. Actually, let me back up. We can't say this person. (laughs) This is all aggregated. So this percentage of listeners use Apple Podcasts. This percentage of listeners uses something else. We can see how many downloads, file requests we got for a specific episode. So we can track over time how many downloads your podcast gets. And here I'm using the word download to encompass everything. Plays, streams, and actual downloads to devices. Then there's additional things that some podcast hosts provide. uh, So we've got just kind of the basics, RSS, file hosting, analytics. And then we have an embedded player that you can use on your website, we can do an embeddable playlist of all of your episodes on your website. And then we also provide a actual podcast website if you want it. We have a basic website template that will, as soon as you click publish on an episode, it also shows up on this website for your podcast. That is the basics of podcast hosting. And certainly there are things that will differentiate you from the com- your competitors, but that's kind of been how podcast hosting works since the beginning. There is another school of thought, another philosophical kind of bent you can take on this, which is adding a new layer of targeting. So this has been a question that, that especially marketers have had from the <laughs> beginning with podcasting is, when are we going to get the data? And again, this is, we're, we're getting into the, the religious discussion now here. <laughs> which religion do you subscribe to?
0: Well, I'll give you my religion, actually, in a very simple analogy. And this is me personally, but I would I would say that most marketers are the same way. But my religion is I believe in growing the size of the pie. I believe more people making more and better shows, and the and better is very important to me, but I, I believe that's a, a healthier, better ecosystem for podcasting. There are others who they just believe in operating in or getting a slightly larger version of a slice of the existing pie. Where... Anybody else entering the fray is like the Hun coming over the wall to attack, right? It's like, get rid of these marketers. There's too many hobbyists. There's too many shows. What is Luminary? How dare they charge for content? And it's like, I think all comers, all models, all approaches just advance a craft. And yes, you're going to get some people that try to game systems. And yes, you're going to get some people that are in it for the money. I get that. But I I think you can continue to have a cottage industry in the same way that you can continue to have actual cottages while also having luxury apartments somewhere else. Right. So same deal. I'm I'm a believer in more innovation, better, more attempts, more, more at bats, if you will. And I I know there are some people, and I've encountered some people who look at what I'm doing, for example, and they kind of look askance because they're they're not convinced that I have this precious idea of podcasts in my heart, which which I don't. I have this precious idea of of serving the listener in my heart. you know, and, and the last thing I'd say on that is, this is a little bit of a soapbox rant, but I would also challenge those people who see podcasts as this beautiful free medium by saying, look, your industry's content is controlled and distributed by a few massive corporations pretty much exclusively. So it's not actually this free and open medium that you think it is. So anyways, that's my rant. I think um, come one, come
1: all. Yeah. And so the, the discussion gets more interesting when we think about user tracking, ad targeting, etc. And that's kind of the new player that showed up in the last five years are companies like Megaphone, Art19, and then the other hosts, some of the other big hosts like Libsyn have also started to try to figure this out, which is how can we track users, podcast listeners, the same way that we track them on the web? How can we start collecting data about, oh, they just viewed my website and then they head over to Facebook and then they see an ad for the website they just saw, or you can go into Facebook and you can say, "I want to only target expecting mothers in the Midwest who have incomes more than a hundred thousand and also have a dog you know that that level of targeting has never been possible in podcasting and There's definitely folks going after that market. John and I have pretty much decided we're not going to go after that market. So if there is a segment of podcasting that is really into user tracking, listener tracking, collecting data, figuring out how to target people more accurately, being able to track listeners through the web, but also through what they're listening to, uh, we're not interested in that. Both from a... (laughs) a technology point of view, like that's just not the kind of technology we want to build, It would make the what we do a lot more complex. It just isn't something that sounds fun to us. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's not the kind of tech we want to build. But also philosophically, one of the reasons I liked podcasting is it felt like mindful technology to me. It felt like This isn't technology that grabs you by the shoulders and then grabs your head and says, you must look at me all day. I'm going to design this technology around addicting you, around having your eyeballs, around you swiping, 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 swiping. It just felt slower and more mindful than other technologies out there. Largely because it doesn't require your eyeballs, And because it's often consumed passively while you're doing other things. And that really appealed to me. I didn't want to build something that was inherently addictive or inherently had to track users in order to make the economics work. What appealed to me about podcasting was this is a medium where you have to earn the trust of the audience. You don't get yep. to grab it. You don't get to steal it. You don't get to uh, you know, slide an ad in when they're not expecting. You don't get to trick them. You hear about a show at a coffee shop or you hear about a show on Slack. You hear about a show because you're scrolling through iTunes and it says you might also enjoy this. And also, usually, I mean, you can get addicted to podcasts, but... Most folks, as I've asked them about their consumption habits, they'll say, yeah, I listen to shows when I'm in the car, and then when I'm out of the car, I turn it off. And this idea that it's this thing that you you listen to it, and then you turn it off, it doesn't demand your constant attention.
0: I like to say that, you know, if, if you think about the glut of marketers now making shows, and we're trying to steward and shepherd that that movement to head in the right direction, the reason I'm so bullish on this, like if somebody were to ask me, you know, why I'm building this, if I knew they were a marketer, I would say, because I want more marketers to make more and better shows, both for their brands and for their audiences. But deep down, just on a human level, the reason I'm building a media company to cover this space is I'd like to help save marketing from itself. And I think one way to do that is to look at the shift we've gone through as marketers, which is it used to be that marketing was defined by grabbing attention. And today, chalk it up to whatever market force you want, because there's a whole list of them. But today, it's about holding attention. And the beauty of that shift, in other words, the beauty of caring less about who arrives and more about who stays, is to get someone to actually stay, you cannot game the system. There is no system to game. You can only provide actual value. That's it. It's the only way to do it. And so to me, if marketing looks their themselves in the, in the face, in the mirror... They'll see, oh, our jobs have changed. We have to hold attention. How do you do that? You have to get good at serving the audience. There's not a little algorithm change that we can jump on and squeeze to death. There's not some kind of addictive technology or clever tracking pixel we can place. It's, I have to deliver. And I just, I love that because it's better for the audience.
1: Yeah. And so this is why I think it is important for us to have philosophical questions and ask questions like, well, Is user tracking good for podcasting? And it's okay for me to have an opinion on that. And it's also okay for people to be on the other side of the fence, too. But there's going to be a dialogue. There's going to be a debate about whether that's really good for podcasting. And I'm not convinced it is. I'm not exactly sure. I don't really know that much. But there's an interview with Charlie Kammerer, president of Slate, which is also, I'm not sure if they're still the owner of Megaphone, but Megaphone came out of Slate. And he had this great interview on Digiday, where the host says, you know, they're talking about targeting and tracking and everything. And the host says, you know, is this going to follow the same story as display ads on the web? Meaning, we all know what happened on the web. We introduced all of this new technology. And the end result for the reader, the web user, was worse. There's been tons of privacy breaches. There's been tons of uh, misuses of the technology. And for advertisers and marketers, it's also worse because it's way more competitive. The ad rates maybe have gone down in some cases. But I don't know if the results that we got made the, the way we got there worth it. And when the host is asking, is this going to follow the same story as display ads on the web? It's not a good story. (laughs) They're they're saying like, oh yeah, remember what happened on the web for content producers? That kind of sucked, didn't it? And Charlie responds, yeah, probably, but I hope not. And I'm I'm like, I'm confused because he's saying, you know, uh, he goes on to say, look what happened in display advertising. A lot of ad networks came in. And with that came some really good things. Right. But on the other hand, it's like, no, this was not good for the web. And your company is positioning itself in a way that is going to, you know, increase user tracking, increase the amount of radio style ads. So the style of the ad is radio, but the delivery mechanism is something you could never do on radio, which is we're going to specifically target people based on their behavior and we're going to collect all of this data on them, and then we're gonna deliver these ads. And what's gonna happen? What's going to happen to the traditional host red ad? And he's saying, well, it's probably gonna go away. That blows up the trust. To me, that's like the
0: exact wrong use of the medium because like we were talking about at the top, when you appear on a stage, when you are on a microphone as the talent, you're acutely aware of how to deliver who you really are as a person, but through that context, through that medium. And when you when you remove, and I know we're talking less now about uh, an owned show by a brand and more about brands maybe running advertising, but when you remove the host read, you remove the very thing that makes this medium so magical and so effective, which is intimacy. It's intimacy maybe uh, capable of achieving intimacy at a greater scale than one to one or you know one to a few, but it's intimacy, and you blow that up as soon as you try to do anything that sounds like programmatic.
1: Yes. I, I'm just not convinced. And I'm I'm, hap- I'm still open to being wrong. But from where I sit right now, it doesn't feel right. And I'm not convinced. Like if we're saying, well, this is going the way that display ads went on the web. Now we're just going to, <laughs> we're going to follow the same playbook that we did on the web. That was not a good playbook for publishers. They shot themselves in the foot by allowing it, opening the door to that. It it would have been better if they had stayed with the old style, which is, you know, if you were carbon ads, you would approach Daring Fireball and you'd say, hey, we have advertisers that want to reach your audience. Can we put an ad on Daring Fireball? And, you know, uh, John Gruber would say yes or no. And he said yes. And so now, if you were, I don't know, if you were fresh books and you wanted to reach John's audience, you'd say, oh, we're going to sponsor... John's blog, but as soon as that goes programmatic, and as soon as it's all based on targeting and retargeting, and you know more and more of the power goes to the platforms like Facebook, ah it didn't that didn't feel like a great evolution to me, and even big publishers like the New York Times, got hurt by that, right? So now we're saying we're just going to redo that exact playbook and in podcasting and like our CPMs are high right now and the audience is growing at a nice, sustainable rate. It's not like exploding, but it's just every year more people discover podcasts.
0: Yep. We've actually, we've tipped now on the awareness data point anyway. Edison does this amazing... Edison Research does this amazing report that people should check out called The Infinite Dial every year. It's like the definitive research on this. And they do more than just podcasting. They do everything in audio. So smart speakers, as you can imagine, is becoming a bigger focus area for them. But their their data on podcasting spans back to 2008. It's like the longest continuous running study. And one of the things that people should know about is, is the awareness factor, has now tipped for the first time ever to include the majority of Americans. So for the first time ever, more than 50% of Americans have heard of podcasts. And so and then obviously the cascade effect of that is there's now more monthly listeners. There's now more weekly listeners. More weekly listeners are finishing more episodes or the majority of episodes. Like there's this nice, like you said, there's this nice steady growth and the lack of explosive growth, I think has kept some of the people who are just here to make a quick
1: buck at bay. Yeah. And I think, so uh, again, everyone ends up having their own re- uh, subscribing to a religion of some sort. Right? <laughs> and so I'm definitely more in the Marco Arment camp, you know, Marco, Overcast. Yeah. Overcast, overcast
0: is, I use Overcast three times a day.
1: Yeah. So he, he does not like this idea of tracking. He does not like this idea of more, you know, more data. He thinks the the data we're providing right now is enough. Well, but but I think I think it is. I think where Marco misses the point
0: is, it is if you're it, the advertising data that leads to this terrible programmatic thing. But if you're running a show, like for the host, I, I want more data not to monetize, but to know who is listening. I want to know if I'm a marketing organization and a brand. I want to justify to my CMO, and this is the this is what I get a lot from MSR, which is a, a subscriber will email me and say, "Hey, we have this great show. We're not able to actually prove." that our listeners are more valuable than, say, social followers or blog subscribers. And I know it in my bones. They always say, I, I meet people who listen to the show and they have such passion. And I love that. It's such a beautiful relationship that forms because of this medium. And I think to preserve that and to give it its due in these organizations, I'd like some data to say, look these people are actually more active like we can hook this up to our CRM and show that they're more involved they're they're super fans compared to passive traffic or even subscribers to the blog or, or what have you and yeah there's going to be some abuse of that but but I would like a little more transparency because and maybe this is wishful thinking. I do think there are lots of well-meaning people out there that would use the data for, for good, so to speak. They're, the Spider-Man, you know, great power, great responsibility thing. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's an idealistic point of view. What, what, what do you think?
1: Yeah. I mean, certainly my opinion of this has changed over time. So when I was an employee, and I'm in product marketing, and the boss is saying, we got to do this. We got to do that. We got to... I was, you know, booking ads on Facebook and doing retargeting and all of those things. I think my perspective now and and partly <laughs> a lot of our bias depends on who's paying our salary. And so, uh, you know, right now I'm paying my own salary and so my bias is informed by that. But partly I'm I'm just questioning how effective all that stuff really is. Let's take your example for example. I don't even know how like how would we track somebody in our CRM is listening to our podcast? How would we do that automatically?
0: Oof, I have no idea. I'm like not being a technologist. I just know, you know, I think good technologists solve real painful problems. And one is, like, this is what I always tell people. I'm like, so you run a company show, and you're convinced, you're sold, you feel it's palpable, that emotion with your audience. You know, they must be more Engage with you as a you know in terms of the brand that they love is your brand, not a competitor, et cetera, et cetera. So I tell people here are two options. Number one is run surveys. It's not that difficult. It's just you're not used to it anymore because you grew up as a digital marketer used to tracking pixels. Run surveys. So you can't track nice and neat like you can on your blog, but ask people, did you know about us before the show or not? Um, what do you think about us now compared to before? And, and there are brands doing that wonderfully. Actually, Red Hat is one of the best in the business at, at doing this surveying of their listenership. Uh, and they have a great show for coders called Command Line Heroes. So that's one, one alternative to automatic tracking or automatic measurement. The other is give them an email list only available through the show with exclusive value. So yes, give them alerts about the episode, but they can get that anywhere. Give them some kind of uh, bonus feature or bonus content. Give them access to you. Do a live call once in a while getting them off the third-party apps that you don't own onto an email list that you do. And then you can see, all right, is this email list more engaged with us? Do they become customers quicker? Do they share more compared to everybody else? So like right now, those seem like good benefits, good alternatives. But the pushback is always, I just need a tool that does that for me, right? That's always the pushback.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I like those two examples you gave because those are like classic Seth Godin permission marketing examples people opt in to wanting to receive more information hey folks if you really like this show subscribe to our newsletter it's over here and then they go and do that they are opting in i increasingly don't like is the non opt in forms of tracking which are they're just tracking me all over the web and creating this web of information that can be used and abused in all sorts of ways and i I wonder, I'm just questioning whether the efficiency that we get from, let's say, a tracking pixel that tracks you through your podcast player, let's say Google Podcasts starts doing this. They start being able to go, okay, there, you know, Jay's logged in to his Gmail account. He gets a new episode on Google Podcasts. Now we can connect that Jay is Listening to the podcast because he's logged into Gmail, and now we can start serving him ads on Google search results and across our ad network based on that. I just that part I I increasingly I'm uncomfortable with. The other thing is I think mm, I'm just going to kind of throw this out as an idea. I think if you're not a billion dollar company, so if you're everything below a billion dollar company, the benefits of that tracking is actually a lot you're you're actually punished so the real beneficiaries of that level of tracking are the big big is
0: that because there's the throughput of how many people and how much money and how you know it's it's a volume game at that point Mm -hmm.
1: at that scale it makes sense but anything below that if you're a one million dollar company a 50 million dollar company a how big is a billion again is that a is is that a hundred million it was my understanding that there would be no math You get the picture. Like there's you can be a pretty big company, you can be uh you know whatever uh let's say a 500 million dollar company and I I think you could benefit from other marketing approaches, other more permission-based marketing approaches than using tracking. And Lars Lofgren, who's one of these folks that I respect so much, he was uh the former director at uh I will teach you to be rich and Kiss Metrics. And so he's had kind of A lot of experience. He just wrote this post called I've built multiple growth teams. Here's why I won't do it again. And in it, he kind of talks about, you know, these big data driven approaches that folks are are using in startups. There's a bunch of reasons you might not want to do it that way. In the sense of you think you've got all this data, but a lot of your data is being collected poorly. A lot of your data is being interpreted poorly, and you probably don't have enough data to be doing what you're doing. And yeah, there's something about that that resonates with me, even as I look back on my career and think of all the things I was doing, you know, while I was working for other people. There are other tools, other approaches that smaller businesses can use. And I'm saying, you know, everyone from $5,000 a year all the way up to $900 million a year there are other approaches that companies at those scales can use that will benefit them more. And really, uh, most of the benefit of all this tracking that we're signing up for goes to the big companies, the one percent.
0: What's next? I mean, what's missing? What's frustrating? Still, you're thinking about this space all day, every day, and building tools to help. And you know, every company, I think, good companies admit they solve. A percent of the problem, not every problem. Like, what do you want to see some enterprising entrepreneur or tech company build that that's still, I, I think, is missing and and podcast hosts and producers really need.
1: Uh, there's a few things. I mean, one thing that uh, John and I are working on right now is better private podcasting. So, if you want to have an internal company podcast that you know generates a username and password for all of your employees and Uh, helps them to subscribe to the podcast in their favorite podcast player. I think there's lots of interesting stuff in there or a completely different market. If you're in training, if you're doing online courses, but you want to deliver your course via audio, you could use a private podcast or something like that. So I think there's lots of interesting things there. Or you're a company and you want to give your best leads an exclusive podcast. There's only 100 people that are allowed to subscribe to this thing. And they get this email that says, hey, you've been invited to Acme Incorporated's exclusive weekly message from the president. And it's actually really compelling stuff that they wouldn't hear on the public feed. There's something interesting there. So I think that's one space that we're looking at. To your point, like you talk about this a lot, I think we need better shows. And so one bit of evolution that needs to happen isn't necessarily on the technology front, but is on the production front. And especially brands need to figure this out. Yes. Voice, tone, storytelling. Uh, How are you going to make the audio interesting? And I think we're actually in a big PR revival. You know, like public relations for a long time was kind of like this thing, you just stuck in a corner. They got the, they got the the broom closet of the marketing department. I think those folks have an opportunity now to emerge and say, Hey, CEO you want to start a podcast, you need to be talking to me. I'm the expert on this. I'm the expert on tone and language and how we do this in an authentic way. And uh, so I'd like to see a lot more movement in the PR space around folks going, hey, we can teach the CEO how to have a good show. We can help craft the narrative that we're using in this show. We can make this interesting. This is public relations. And in the same ways they would evaluate the benefits of public relations in the past, are the way they'll evaluate their podcasting campaign, right? How did this resonate? You know, what kind of uh, other publicity did we get from this? How does this improve our reputation in the market? And some of those are really qualitative measures, but I think that's going to become more and more important.
0: Thank you to Justin Jackson, founder of Transistor. Also, thank you to our two sponsors today, Casted and Contently. If you're a B2B marketer who hosts a podcast, check out the tools available to you specifically built by Casted at casted.us. And if you're working at a larger organization and believe that creating higher quality content is better marketing, check out the content strategy course that Contently is offering our listeners. Visit contently.com slash threeclips. Form fill required. This episode was mixed by Johnny Peterson at Straight Up Podcasts. You can get more episodes of 3 Clips wherever you listen or by visiting our website, marketingshowrunners.com. I'm Jay Akonzo, and I believe great marketing isn't about who arrives. It's about who stays. So thanks for staying with me. And I'll talk to you next Monday on the next episode of 3 Clips. See ya. Time for this week's recommended read from the marketing showrunner's blog. It's an article by Tally Gabriel called Keep Your Audience Hooked with Open Loops. It's part of our series of show bites where we try to snap off a tiny little technique from this massive project that is a show and go deep on it and make sense of it so we can all make better shows. Here's the deal we're all in the business of earning trust, trust develops over time. But people only spend time with things that they deem their favorite things. We have so much choice today. They have to know it's a good use of their time. So when somebody hits play on your show, how will you ensure they don't hit stop? In other words, how do you keep people hooked, keep them around, and honor the golden rule of audio? Get them to the end. To do all that, we can try Open Loops. They're one of the most overlooked and most powerful tactics in all of showrunning by all marketing. It's so bizarre to me. So please read that article. It's called Keep Your Audience Hooked with Open Loops. You can find the link at the end of your show notes or search the blog at marketingshowrunners.com.